baseball fans. BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free to play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free to play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey, what's going on? You are listening to Tags Podcast, a.k.a. Talk About Gay Sex. That's right. This is episode 159. I'm your host, Steve Rodriguez. This episode, I am really excited to talk to the book I've been talking about for the book club, Every Grain of Sand by David P. Wickman. Wichman actually is the pronunciation as he corrected me, but he said it's okay to say Wichman too. Anyways, uh, such an amazing memoir. I highly recommend it. We're going to get into his whole story. It's riveting. That's all I'm going to say. That's coming up in just a second. And don't forget to send us your questions for myself and my co-host Jeremy Ross Lopez and Lincoln because next week we are back and we will be answering some of your questions. So if there's something you want to know about the three of us as we just celebrated 1 million all-time downloads for the podcast, personally, we're going to answer it for you. We're also going to, you can weigh in on past gay sex topics that you've heard us talk about that you just want to give your two cents into. Let us know. And if you want some sex solicited advice, we will give it to you. So it's we're recording it in one week. You got some time. Either re- go to tagspodcast.com and there's various ways you can reach out to me or you can just email me, steve at talkaboutgaysex.com also you can go to patreon.com forward slash talkaboutgaysex this week I am giving all my patrons a new gift this week it's a video on cock rings I've got a whole collection here in my studio of various cock rings and I'm going to show you the different ones talk about them and at the various tiers I will show you a demo on how to put them on because some of them are quite complicated. So you can find out about that. Go to patreon.com forward slash talk about gay sex. Let's get into my interview with the author of Every Grain of Sand. Okay, well, I am really excited today. I've been talking about his book for so long here. He has written a book, Every Grain of Sand. It's a memoir. It's uh, my guest today is David P. Wickman. And before I introduce him, just want to read a little bit about the author so you guys get an idea. Um, David P. Wickman is an author, speaker, sexual healer, and entrepreneur, entrepreneur passionate about his message. 
He is respected and well-known all over the world to those who seek to renew themselves and explore ways to live a fulfilling life free of stigma, shame, and fear around sex, love, and intimacy. In 2006, when David began his journey into sex work, unbeknownst to him, he found his calling. While working with sometimes marginalized men, such as seniors, the disabled, and those with severe intimacy issues, he discovered the profound transformational power that sex work creates for both client and provider. Uh, In 2009, he found a travel companion company, The Male Adventure. Um, He's been so many places around the world. He is an activist for the LGBTQ, the the main community, and stays connected to current and emerging issues that dominate marginalized communities. He is a passionate fundraiser for HIV and AIDS-related causes and other nonprofits supporting other other abled persons and benefiting animal rescues. Uh, and, and he speaks around the world. He, like I said, he has his brand new book, Every Grain of Sand, which is riveting. David, how are you? I'm so good. And I have to tell you that that is like the longest about the author page. And so I cannot blame you at all for like cutting it down because it's I just hope I so didn't butcher wordy. it up too much. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. And I always, I always cringe when I hear the word healer. I'm just like, cause I don't feel like a healer, you know, but when you're working with other entities like co-authors and writers and publicists and stuff, they like to polish things up so, for the no. greater for the greater good of the audience. <laughs> well, before we get into it, sure. and there's so much to get into your memoir, Every mm-hmm. Grain of Sand. I've been talking about it on the show so much. It's essentially a memoir of how you grew up in a physically and emotionally abusive house, went into foster care after foster care programs, at a young age was sexually molested, was homeless at one point, addicted to drugs, which we'll totally get into, which plays a huge part of your memoir. Arrested a couple times, the second time being a white-collar crime incident, and somehow managed to get a new break turning your life around in so many positive ways, including, as we just read, as a male escort, and not necessarily like you might think, listeners, but... As And I would use the word healer, and we'll tap into all that. Just talk about, because when you first read the book, as most memoirs, you have to really set the stage. And you grew up in the Bay Area in the early 70s, much like myself, lived with your mother and your stepdad, and it was a completely abusive um, childhood. You had brothers. Talk a little bit about that because you had how many brothers and sisters? There's, I have seven brothers and sisters, but some are step and didn't live with us. And some, you know, it was a constant uh, rotating door of brothers and sisters land. But yes, it was a, um, a very toxic environment. And um, they, and I, I guess, and I talk about this a little bit in the book about they're in larger uh, nuclear type families like this, mixed families. Uh, there tends to typically be one child who bears the brunt of most of the scapegoating, most of the punishing, most of the blame for the family's problems as a whole. And I kind of took on that. I didn't take on the role. I was assigned to that role <laughs> and um, and kind of lived in that existence for many, many years. And it was pretty tragic and pretty horrible. You write on page 35 that I, really struck me. You says, even more than being molested, This moment was one of the darkest marks on my life. 
Though my stepfather went on to make beating me his regular pastime, nothing he did afterward ever broke me as thoroughly as this sadistic, premeditated punishment. These two people I trusted appeared to be so disgusted that I was no longer worthy of love. In that moment, my spirit departed my body, and what was left was a ghost in the shape of a six-year-old boy. I be, I've, I'd been hollowed out by humiliation, excavated of any last sense of love and belonging. And for so wow. many of us, my just when I think of my six-year-old, I've, I mean, if I even have any memories, it was just, you know, I fortunately had a loving uh, mother and father, yeah. but... Wow. Um, to feel that at such talk a little bit about that. And it was really your stepfather that was the abuser, correct? And your mother kind of stood by. Yes. Co-signed and just sort of allowed and endured the, well, who knows what her, I can't get into her head. It's and I won't get into her head. Um, especially that far back. It was a very long time ago. And, I, and you mentioned about having memories. And what is very interesting about that is that during that period of my life, to me, when, it, when you read it back to me from the book, it's this, I have this compelling like awfulness that's going on. But for me, I was in protection mode. I was constantly shields up, guarding my life. And so I wasn't really experiencing the... Um, the outcome as it, as it were, as it was happening. I was experiencing the violence. I was experiencing the shame. I was experiencing the, you know, the unwantedness of my very existence in my own home. And so it's a little different perspective when you're writing a book because you're, especially working with Heather, because she's like this, she digs and digs and digs. And she Heather's your co-author. Heather Ebert. Yeah. And she, the way we did the book is she, um, interviewed me four hours a day, three, four days a week. And we had, I had to relive this experience. And so I tell a little bit of one story and then she would go into this like mode of questioning and digging further and deeper and deeper. And these, this incredible, uh, I don't, it, this shadow just appeared, this horrible, you know, realization of, I spent my entire life minimizing and rationalizing what had happened in order to in order to survive, in order to at least be able to deal with the idea that this tiny little skinny child was being brutally abused. I mean, in even when you speak about it, you're like, I can barely stand to think about it. And so as a, as a growing up young adult and adult, you, you don't want to think about that, the reality of that. And so you do things and tell yourself stories and rationalize ways of dealing with it until you can't deal with it anymore. And you end up you know, taking the road that I took, obviously. You go into great detail of exactly what you endured. And it, it was physical. It was being put in a room where there was cat yeah. feces and, and the smell of that. It was yeah. really, really horrible what you would never wish on anybody, any child, of course. Um, but in parallel during that, and so actually commend the way you went about writing this book with Heather, because I think, you know, we've all heard stories about people growing up with abuse. Somehow I felt like I was inside your head vividly and it does make the reader really get a sense of what abuse can look like. And 
I appreciated that, not in, only because I think I under, you know, I got a glimmer of potentially what you may have gone through. But paralleling during that time, there's another event that happens to you. There's a, a guy by the name of Norman right. that you and a, a kid friend of yours somehow stumble upon. I think your friend likes to go over there because he it, this Norman has a, an apartment and you can play, I don't know, was it video games? Video games, right. Yeah, the early video games, I would imagine. Right. And yeah, Norman is an older guy. And at this point, how old are you about? I'm like literally six or seven years old. I'm, I don't, I don't think I even hit second grade yet. Crazy. And I was, we were these little like troublemakers in the neighborhood. This is, you know, really in the, in the seventies, it was kind of a different world. You know, you just sort of rode your bike around till the lights came on and you knew the rules and you, you kind of followed them and you did stupid things. And as a, child you kind of lived free and carefree and so you just kind of trusted all the weird stuff that was going on and uh, this guy was a pedophile obviously and um he somehow i guess pre before he uh molested me he had been luring other kids into his house from my neighborhood and I had a lot of boys in my neighborhood and i didn't find out till many years later that he had molested many of them as well but um yeah it was a interesting time because I didn't think anything of it I, at the time while it happened I was like this is cool this feels great this look at that giant cock am I allowed to say that on the show yes of course <laughs> okay. yes. I'm like look at what it does I, like I was thrilled I was <laughs> like this hot you know I'm six seven years old and I'm just like this little kid mesmerized by this giant cock and this you know older man who's you know I'm not getting love at home anyway I'm being you know uh scapegoated and and this is probably just a little bit before things turned really bad and and things were still okay at home and so I just sort of like all of a sudden I have this attention on me and you know and as I talk about in the book you know it shifts because he's guilt-ridden and shamed by religion and, and and he imposes those belief systems upon me as a child and scares the fuck out of me, you know? And I lived in this turmoil because it was this giant secret. It was a little secret before that I didn't really care about keeping because I didn't think it was bad. And then well, suddenly, I, you know, I was told it was the, the, the greatest sin of all, con- of all time. And if I ever told anybody, I'd go to hell for the rest, you know, for eternity. So, Well, in one sense, as many people that are molested that are – under age say it feels good because sex feels good and you don't necessarily always have the mental capacity to understand that on the other hand you're also thinking it maybe feel good too because you're at six years old you don't know your sexuality well as it turns out you know you turned out to really like cock and, right. and all that but maybe didn't need to be exposed to it and by you know yeah. pedophile at that age and what I found interesting and we won't there's so much in this book that if yeah. we tell you a mini school in this interview yeah. you, it's it's I love it but it turns out that Norman pays the two of you I guess to just spend time at the at his place I think he actually pays us to go <laughs> to get out because, you know, it was it's this he sort of has this giant change dish on the top of his refrigerator and he likes he, he would let us 
take a handfuls of it and shove it into our pockets before we left. And um, the change dish was always out of reach until after the dirty deed was done. And I never saw him have do sexual acts with anybody else. And let me just clarify something really quickly. Molestation is an awful, horrible thing to do to a child. And I want you, because I said it was this innocent sort of like play game thing for me, because that's what it was at the time. But as a grown adult, I know that it destroys lives. So let's just, I want to make sure that I'm very clear about that before anybody thinks that I might be thinking that it was an okay situation until he shamed me. It was not no. okay at any time from any, from any perspective at all. But I just wanted to give reference to what was actually going on in my mind at the time. Well, and so, I think it really paints a picture, which we learn so much more about your, your story, what's to come, but the, you know, your reality, what really occurred, it's no wonder that you are even talking to me today and, and have really have such a beautiful life currently and have had for the last several years. So, wow. But I think, you, you know, it's important that you did share that. And I'm, I'm glad that you did. Um, you do write, it's funny because in the sixth grade at some point in the book, I think it's around page 42, you talk about getting a hold of the book. And it reminded me when I, how my father taught me about sex too. I think I got the joy of sex. Right. right yes. Later I found out there was a book called The Joy of Gay Sex that yes. he did not hand me, but <laughs> <laughs> you got a hold of a book called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, But We're Afraid to Ask by Dr. David Rubin. And right. it's totally outdated and, and in yes. so many ways, but you know, it's what we had at the time and you had a 1969 edition of it. And at one point uh, I was highlighting as I was reading along, you write, the part I found most captivating was Dr. Rubin's description of prostitution, how, right. pimps tend to, how pimps tend to control women and take their money in exchange for food, clothing, and a place to live. What could be better than having someone take care of me? All I had to do was have sex with men. Sign me up. Right. I went on to read that male hustlers didn't typically have pimps because they couldn't work as hard or bring in as much money. Even so, male hustlers could still support themselves. That's yes. what I could be when I grow up. It'll get me out of here. This is how I'm going to escape. Mm -hmm. And by escape, you uh, because as you go on, you, you tell the story of the abuse is just... It's too much, and your mother unbearable. is unbearable. And you then move on to the foster care system. Yes. And you have some good situations and some bad, but every time you kind of always go back giving your mom and your stepdad another chance. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. And that's interesting because I always thought I was going back to them looking for a second chance. <laughs> you know, yeah. during the time I was always like, oh, I'm so bad. Maybe, right. they'll, maybe they'll love me now. It's just, it was just this. You were young, but. Yeah. You know, when you're a child, you want to be loved. <laughs> okay. So you're, when you're a child, you're supposed to be loved, <laughs> period. End of story. Right. And, and growing and all of the things that come with childhood. Uh, one of the things that isn't on the table for that is to. Um, severely abuse or neglect your child and to make them come to you, make your child come to you looking for love <clears throat> that isn't available to begin with. Um, 
and that's, you know, that was the, that was the truth of that time, you know, and that was what happened. And, um, you know, it just was never there. It, it actually, I still don't think it's there today. It's just different, you know, you're uh, talking with your, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But you know, Um, it is the, it is what it is. You know, at some point you do manage to break away and you make your way. There's so many things that, yeah. again, we're talking about Every Grain of Sand, a memoir by David P. Wickman, a riveting memoir that I highly, highly recommend. At some point, though, you make your way as an escape, of course. Yeah. You've experimented a little bit with some drugs, but you do make your way to San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco myself yeah. in the almost the same period you did. Um, there's an area in San Francisco called the Tenderloin. And particularly, it's not so great now, but particularly in that 80s, 90s, it was gritty. It was an interesting area because one of the main thorough streets, Market Street, runs through the city, but just a little bit above it in certain parts is called the Tenderloin. And that's where it's it's just gritty. I mean, there's homelessness, but there's there. I used to be drawn to it because there were adult uh, movie theaters that's and right. dating myself there, but there was some, and I got enough nerve to go in there. Talk about your first experience yeah. when you moved there and why did you choose I, that area? Well, I, at the moment I saw that area, I knew, I, especially at that time, I was like, wow, this is home. I mean, this is where I belong. And I mean, and I don't talk really in depth, too much about it in the book, and I really wish I would have. Is it is the color and character of the people that lived in San Francisco at that time, and I mean, you know, it is. It was just. It was like living in a dream almost. You were just like, who is this weirdo who I love so much? You're like just right. the wildness of the whole time, and it was sort of that. It was just the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and so it really wasn't crazy, crazy like scary at that period of time, especially because I was so toxic at the time and I, did, and I was so carefree at the time that it just felt like, um, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was mesmerizing and it was inviting and it felt adventurous and it felt like danger was, it was dangerous in a way that was cool, that was good. And so, um, and it felt like I could do something to serve. I felt like th- at, at certain times it felt like there was, a, I remember thinking this to myself, there's opportunities here for me where there were no opportunities anywhere else. And so, you know, when you don't have any money and you're struggling, you're able to at least search for opportunities to make money, you know, hustling or whatever, you know, getting a part-time job or a day labor job, whatever it was at that time, there was a number of things I talk about in the book that I did to make money. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. You talk uh, one of your, a vivid story that comes to mind was your first time you decided to make some money, and you're <laughs> you know you're living in different spots that allow you to live, and you meet up with a guy that lures you into an adult bookstore, and if people right. know that back in the day. You know, there were adult bookstores, and then you'd go into the back, and the back had video, kind of these arcade, kind of little, I don't know, what cubicles would you call yeah, them? Yeah, little porno booths, whatever, little video booths. 
And your guy, the yeah. client that was to be your first client, <laughs> is a big, a, a larger man. <laughs> big, slimy, barely, fat guy. Right? That can barely, you, well, let me, why don't you tell the story? Because <laughs> it was so funny. And I will tell it with a little context. I was terrified of hustling off the street. Terrified. And there was no, like, there was no internet back then. And I was just like how am I going to do this? I mean, I got what I was supposed to do. I knew how to cruise guys. And I, and I, the, I knew the trick was to cruise guys that looked like they needed, like, like they, they were willing to pay for sex. And, um, I was terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody with a little bit of critical thinking, you could, t- could tell I was terrible at it. And, um, <clears throat> a guy approached me, he's like, you know, do you want to, you want to go fuck around in the, in the, in the bookstore and maybe I'll buy you lunch, which to me signaled that he was going to pay me. <laughs> right. There was no way. And I laugh to about that. it now. Yeah. Right. Right. I laugh about it now because I think how ridiculous it was for me to think. I, anyways, it, and the thing, the dirty deed happened. It was humiliating and embarrassing, but it was. Well, I think first, you, we should, we need to just paint this picture real quick right. here because yeah. you, many, you, you say you walk into the back area, the <laughs> cubicles are tiny he makes we squeezes his body yes. inside there, which doesn't leave any room really for you. You're, right. Most of your body's outside of this. I'm cubicle. standing outside with the curtain. I'm, I'm imagining me. it's like you know two thirty in the afternoon or something. I don't know why. Right. Or somewhere like you know exactly exactly not necessarily your sexy time. And no. you, he says, he pulls his pants down and says, "Fuck me." Right, because fuck and me. you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, but you somehow managed to do the deed, and in two seconds, the guy like comes and pulls yeah. his pants up, and then walks out. And does he? Did he pay you? Did you get that lunch? Here's the thing: he walked out. He was like scurrying out the door, and I just looked at him like, where the, you know, what the hell is going on here? And he knew that he was trying to pull a fast one, and so. I just gave him that look, like you're really going to do this to me, and he handed me five bucks. Oh my! That's <laughs> like, go get yourself you know, a sandwich. Which right. I mean, maybe you could have at that time in San Francisco, but uh, no, you could. You, know. you could have at that time. I, you know, you could get a burrito for two dollars. And the thing was, for me, I was so broken and so desperate at that time. And while I was humiliated and mortified, it was like I was used to being humiliated and mortified and broken down. It didn't really affect me in a way like it would affect somebody who had never experienced or had, you know, limited experience with being, uh, you know, broken. And, um, he had to be that money. And, and in the same thought that I was like, this asshole, the same thought I was like, I fucking did it. I did it. You know, I, I was actually able to do this thing that I had been so afraid of doing before. And so I lost a little bit of the fear didn't make me a better hustler, but I lost a little bit of the fear of what it's like to do that, to actually go in and cross the threshold of a bookstore to take money for sex. So it was, it was, it was a pretty, it was a teachable moment. Teachable moment. (laughs) But you also talk a little bit about how you weren't necessarily comfortable with your body and how you looked then you just didn't. And why would, why would you have any confidence given what you had gone through, you were simply trying to escape. But you do write something that was interesting because during this time or around that time afterwards, at least, you you get a hold of a book that somebody does give you by Louise Hay, correct? Right. And I just want to read this 
tiny portion because you, you go, my attempts, and she writes about spirituality, right? essentially, and so much more. Right. But you write at this part, my attempts at manifesting goodness and prosperity in life through creative visualization were sabotaged by an opposing inner force, the voice mm-hmm. of trauma and brokenness. Yeah. You're not good enough. You're never going to make it off the street. Your life is shit. You're a prostitute. You're not worth anything. Yeah. Just look at what you've done. The only way I knew to escape that voice and the suffocating experience of being inside my own body was to get strung out on crack or drink myself into oblivion. Before right. long, I bottomed out completely. And you just go on from there. But yeah. any, you see, there were glimmers of hope, obviously, or of inspiration that you were presented with but this lifestyle and like we talked about the tenderloin didn't offer a lot of opportunities it was simply survival correct yeah it was it's interesting there's this whole like it feels like a little bit of hope but at the same time more so it was about desperate grabbing for anything that could make me not be who I was so if it meant that I could chant or meditate or say affirmations, I felt like, well, there might be a little hope if I just do this thing. And I did all kinds of things, which I talk about in the book, to try to fix me, right? And it took a really long time for me to understand that I didn't need to be fixed. I just needed to uncover all the ideas of being broken, you know, and get rid of that idea. But that's a much further into the story. I think what's interesting, though, is, and as you'll read, and this has so many layers to it, there's such a spiritual side that ultimately comes out of it and seeking out, and I I relate to a lot of that myself, but even in this darkest time, it... Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Even without a lot of parental guidance, positivity in your life, you were somehow seeking it out in one way, shape, or form that ultimately there's a, a, you know, goodness that does come. But um, I just want to say, you know, because there's so much at this point, and I'm just looking at my notes here, you do get involved with um, the law, and you do have a few boyfriends here and there that, um, let's just briefly, really quickly talk about the drugs, the drug of choice, mm. uh, you know, what drugs did to you and what was the drug that you just really couldn't let go of? And I have a really great segue into that because I think what's really important for me to say here is that 
I was always seeking some kind of a connection. I had not had a connection from a very young age onward. There was no like safety in my life. And so whether it be spirituality or drugs or sex or men taking care of me or some other, the, the, the constant uh, underlying of all of that is seeking some sort of um, s- some connection. And I, and I believe and love maybe <laughs> and love. Yeah. And that especially love. Yeah. You know, that connection is about love and safety and producing some, you know, serious oxytocin, <laughs> but yeah, the drugs were my escape. And, you know, I don't remember a lot of my drug usage history. I just know I, I was a blackout alcoholic and a crack addict in the early 80s. And then as I grew into the 90s, I started getting into methamphetamine and started slamming meth. And I became, I was really that guy that you'd see on the street carrying the plastic garbage bags from hotel to hotel, screaming at the trees or screaming at the taxi cab driver for no apparent reason, because I was lost in this world of serious psychoses, terrified, completely terrified and completely strung out for you, decades. You even talk about one point just to continue the picture that you're painting yeah. that I'm not sure that I really ever understood when people said, I mean, I, I, I understood don't share needles, Yeah, but you, I'm not sure I really thought, I just thought, I don't know what I thought, but <laughs> um, when I read your description of really what that meant and how you may have been walking needles were hard to come by yeah. and it was a whole thing of actually taking somebody's needle and then yeah. disinfecting it as best you could yeah. and praying, you know, we'll get into the AIDS epidemic in a second here, but wow. Yeah. And yeah. hoping for the best just to get that high. That Right. Well, and, and the thing is, is the level of desperation, especially during those years was that, you know, IV drug users were, the scourge, they were the, you know, considered like complete invisible. You don't even, if you're an IV drug user, you're garbage. And um, there's a heavy stigma associated with that back then. And it's different. It, it feels like it might be a little different nowadays because it's a little bit more accessible and people have evolved a little more and you couldn't get needles back then. There was no state of emergency. You know, you had to literally it was like a black market for needles and you would have to literally go and talk to homeless people on the street who you knew were junkies to get a rig and get a cotton ball and some bleach or some alcohol or something to clean it out with. And 90% of the time the needles were dull, dirty, and you were so, I was so desperate and so like did not care that it was just, it was pretty sad. And when I think it's, back and just like, I can't believe that I'm still alive today. I can't believe in, it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you're happy. I'm happy that you are. But um, it's interesting too, because when you think of the time frame too, right. it wasn't necessarily the Reagan era that turned a blind eye, but it was coming out of that really yeah. in so many ways. And, you know, I'm sorry, Nancy Reagan, but just say no <laughs> was not an effective campaign. And, you know, it was, what I'm saying? it was more of an encouraging campaign. Exactly. <laughs> and I know even in my, you know, I lived in the mid nineties in San Francisco and having sex, you always, you know, I used condoms with everybody yeah. I had sex with, but 
there was always that uh, idea that, that, you know, you could get the AIDS, you yeah. could get AIDS, HIV positive and, yeah. and get AIDS. And you do talk a lot about that in, in the book. Um, just say a couple things about, you know, because you, you go into great depth and great, uh, create a great picture. And I don't, well, you know. And I think it's important, you know, we were all scared back then. You know, you, you couldn't, I was afraid to, you know, there was so many different mixed messages. And as, as we evolved, as safer sex practices came into play, there was a little bit more measured even headedness about it. You knew what to expect. You knew what to do. And you, you know, you did it and you didn't, um, you know, you tried to reduce your risk as much as possible. And I'm not going to say I didn't take risks, but I'm just grateful that I didn't die of AIDS, you know? So, but it was a, it was a very scary time back then. And, um, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. No, it it is. And there's something I'll bring up in a a little bit when we get into that. Um, But, you know, it's interesting because you do have boyfriends at this time and you tend to have boyfriends, obviously, that both of you are either looking for ways to get money and get the drug and kind of feed off of each other. Um, you find yourself in jail a few times, but ultimately jumping way along, you find yourself in not petty crime anymore, but kind of white collar crime, which included, you know, credit card fraud, stolen identities, mail fraud and so forth. And it sounds like in reading it, that this kind of went on for a while and you were aware of the, what, what was going on and how serious this was. And you even, I I believe knew that you were being investigated. Yes. Um, But you continue on. Yes. Which is the, the saddest part of it all is that when you're in the delusion of your addiction, when I'm in the, this delusion that I think what I'm doing is not harming anybody or that what I'm doing is just this means to an end and there is no real ramifications coming I could easily convince myself of that as long as I could get loaded at the end of it. And that is what the circle and the cycle was, was to do these crimes, a means to an end. I'm just going to do this and just so I can get loaded. And it just went on and on and on. And, you know, you'd see the white vans parked outside. You'd see the police would come and knock your door down and search your house and take evidence to build a case against you. And still, I would still continue on. And, you know, it, I got to tell you, being arrested and um, being taken into the federal system was probably one of the more life-changing, scary, but yet best thing that ever happened to me because I was, you know, I had to serve nine months in a, in a high security jail to detox. And once I got my head cleared and I was that much further away from a drug and a drink, Then all of the precious time of, oh, my God, what have I done? You're looking back at your life going, wow. And then the consequences come and the, 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 um, the, re- the revelation of the harm that was really done, you know, the, watching your entire what little life you had completely disintegrate, you know, and all the things, the little things that you loved in your life. I had a dog at the time and, you know, they're all uh, taken away. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so. Yeah. It was really tragic. It was really horrible. And, you know, you, I came to this, I had this moment of like awakening where I was just like, 
you know what, no matter what happens, this is, I'm never going to live that life again. That is no matter how many years I spend in this prison, when I get out of here, it's over. This whole thing ends today, right now. And I watched people come in and out of that prison who would get released and they'd come back. And I'd be like, what happened? Why had you got out? You know, and they're like, you know, it was, that was their lifestyle. And I learned a lot of people recommit crimes because they still are stuck in that delusion. And for some reason, I was clear about my trajectory and, um, you know, I caught a break, you know. You're doing a really good job of explaining all that period. And it's so well detailed and, and again, not to overuse the word riveting, but I highly recommend reading because it's, there was something that definitely clicked for you at that point that you definitely, you got a second chance and there's a whole point about a judge and and there's a waiting time that you had to really wait, not just to have your trial. And and that was almost the nine months and it's crazy, but you do decide. And it's interesting because in reading, it it seemed like you were so determined at the point you had been spiritually active behind bars even with a, yes. a group of people but and I would imagine all that time nine months did you feel that you had detoxed enough because and that what was drugs had been such a part of your life for so long what was it that never and did you ever get tempted again um no I, uh, the detox lasted a couple of weeks, the real physical detox, but the mental leftovers lasted for a couple of years. And that clarity, you know, I went through a lot of growing pains in, and I joined the, you know, when I got out, I was in 12 step recovery and I'd go to meetings and, you know, I was really, when I look back at those years, I was really insane. I was really crazy. And, um, and it was because I was just so confused and didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I had no clue what I was going to do. I started walking dogs, as I talk about in the book. But I didn't have a purpose. I didn't feel like what I was doing was meaningful. But at the same time, it was meaningful for me to just pay a bill. So it didn't matter if I had some greater purpose in store. What, I, what mattered was that I was doing what was in front of me. I was staying alive. I was living an okay, fine life. And that was great for me. I'm good. You know, like that's enough. I'm not committing crimes. I'm not sticking needles in my arms. I'm not dying of AIDS. I, you know, I'm not, you know, turning tricks in a bookstore for five bucks. You know, there are lots of stories that didn't make it into that book. Wow. (laughs) Lots of stories that didn't make it. You know, that was the, the, the state that I lived in. But after a couple of years of living in that state, like the clarity came and it's like, really, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? And that's when the sex work really came in because I had no money to pay bills. I was barely making enough money to get by. Yeah. So let's talk about that real quick because you're out, you, you find a way to, you're determined not going back to that, not going back to jail. Does you will get right into the male escorting mm-hmm. and everything, but you become a dog walker. And is that in tandem yeah. at the same time or yes. it's not, Oh, I started walking dogs right out of jail because I had no money. I was homeless and I was like living on a friend's couch at one time. And I was 
going from 12 step meeting to 12 step meeting, eating cookies and drinking coffee. And I had my dog, you know, and I was like, so I'd take my dog and other people's dogs to the park. And I pretended like, you know, like any good hustler does that I was a professional dog walker and I got to know people at the park. And when they had extra dogs, I got them and I was able to make a little money. And, you know, as I, and I talk about the whole story in the book, cause it's a really beautiful part of the book is that. I grew spiritually and I also got a lot of clarity from taking these dogs out on walks every day and I had consistency and I had structure and I had a foundation. And so as that growth spurt happened and I started making money and I became this really fabulous dog walker in San Francisco, um, I wasn't, I still wasn't making enough money <laughs> and I needed to make more money. Otherwise I couldn't continue well, there's a lot of yeah. extraordinary tales that yeah. occur that yeah. I'm going to let everybody just read that are yeah. extraordinary yeah. that really, to me, feel like you planted a spiritual seed that set a tone yeah. that seem almost unbelievable, but I know yeah. they're not, and they're so beautiful, and I'm, I can't wait for people to read those moments. That, yeah. And it seems like they keep coming from you know time and time view, which is so beautiful. But moving into when you... You do decide to make more money and you become a male escort. And I, I would imagine it seemed like you were just kind of, you know, I'll be a male escort. Rent, man, right. rent boy had just kind of launched. It was now yeah. we're in the Internet time now and all that. But interestingly enough, you take a different turn. And, and I just wanted to read this one little bit on page sure. 200 where... You say, uh, so many of us hide our shame and inability to accept ourselves. Many people gain weight to protect themselves from intimacy and getting hurt, often without realizing they're doing so. Everyone puts up walls, and we and each person expresses it differently. People suffer from the stigmas and isolation around disability or sexual fetishes involving gender, age, weight, weight race, whatever it might be. When someone hired me and I recognized they were ashamed or insecure, I made it a priority to shine a light on it. I had to complete I, I had to be completely unaffected by it, which was a delicate balancing act. Total yeah. acceptance granted them immense relief and eased the pressure I felt in figuring out how to best serve them. Oftentimes, yeah. when a person is truly seen and accepted, they lower their walls a bit, leaving just enough room to build some trust. Wow, that's beautiful, and it's so true. Um, talk a little bit about that period on how yeah. you know you went just to be a rent boy, and yeah, yeah. I was, you know, it was all for me. It was all about money. I'm going to pay the rent. I'm going to get up. I'm going to get a leg up. At the time, you know, I was still, you know, pretty open minded and pretty down for doing whatever I needed to do to get by. And I ended up because I was so, I don't know why, I, I won't even say why, because, um, but I ended up in the room with men, my, one of my very first clients was an amputee. And I talk about that in the book, but it, it, I ended up meeting and, 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 and being present and filling a space in a room for somebody who felt unacceptable, somebody who felt completely like I felt back then, right? They felt, I recognized they that look seen. immediately. And, and I knew immediately if I cringed or if I made some sort of effort to uh, de 
detour or go, go away, that that was a handed rejection. And what I didn't know I was being called to do was to open up myself to it and be that, that acceptance, be that lovability that they think that they lack. And, um, and it blew my socks off. And I, you know, I took off, I was just like, this is it. This is the answer for me personally. It's not the answer for everyone, but you know, all of the parts of me that felt unacceptable, unlovable, broken, it wasn't my job to fix that. It was my job to be lovable and tell and, and, and be acceptable and allow others to be lovable and acceptable and, and hot and sexy, no matter what they look like in the room that I stood in. And by becoming that, I, it actually, I got more from those experiences than I could have ever given those clients. You know, most guys think they're going in there just to get their rocks off and they need somebody they can trust and need somebody who's going to fuck their brains out and do a good job and not rip them off. And, you know, over the years, especially because a lot of my clients I've had for many years now, we've realized and come to the conclusion and the, uh, the idea that, wow, this is a lot more, this is about a lot more than just sex. This is about this, you know, realization that, you know, that I am acceptable, that we are all acceptable right where we're at. We're all um, sexy and lovable, no matter what we think. And the more we understand that the more we're seen, the more we're heard, the more we are touched and touch is an imperative part of that. Cause a lot of people, it's easy to say, I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want the touch part often gets left out. People want to be fucked. They want their fucking brains fucked out and they want to be kissed and they want to be held and they want to feel fucking good. They want that oxytocin flowing. You know, we all do. Right. You know? and, right. and people go years without it. You know, the they go years Yeah, they haven't, you know, and so it's just this wonderful. You know, you give so many great stories of this that are beautiful of just being, of your clients being seen and feeling okay yeah. to be seen. And I can only imagine that it was cathartic on so many levels for you, given your past and what you had been through of just being seen. Yeah. Um, but you do write at one point, and I totally appreciate what you write here on page 206. Just real quickly, you say, sure. escort, sex worker, prostitute, whore, call it what you will, but I love what I do. The puritanical moralist demonized sex work and natural human needs. Laws have been long been in place where there, uh, that harm sex workers and create an environment that punishes people for having consensual sexual encounters the archaic system of shame-based legal hoopla has kept sex workers dodging systems that have been in place to control and enslave them for centuries. You on for that, but it's so true. And the work that you do, and I, I understand continue to do with so many of your clients is, is just um, to be commended and beautiful. So. Uh -huh. Well, you know, that passage that you just read right there, well, I had been planning to write this book for many, many years. The real catalyst for me starting this journey again um, was the Rent Boy Raids and the idea of the shame and the stigma around sex work. And that came when the Rent Boy got shut down and the um, what is, Red Book got closed down and all, right. of this, all this drama around sex workers. And kind of a resurgence came about in me. I was just like, I was going to write the book on just about sex work. 
And I thought, God, they're going to rip me apart if I just tell my story from this part to the end. I got to explain the whole thing. (laughs) It ended up being like a memoir, much bigger than I thought it was going to be and much uh, more in depth than I thought it was going to be. But it was that paragraph that you read right there that really said, David, if you don't tell your story, uh, mom, pa from Des Moines is never going to understand what you do. They're never going to believe it. They're never going to accept it. And, um, you know, it was just, and so, and the journey began, you know, absolutely. There is so much more that we can talk about. There's, uh, you really go into your spiritual journey that I was reading last night and I, you know, I had tears in my eyes at so many times, uh, you, you were in a triad relationship. Interestingly yeah. enough, we talked about a triad relationship on the show recently, not thruple triad, which I appreciated. Right. Yeah. Um, you also talk about a, a business you started based on your uh, clients where you travel around the world, yeah. experiencing the world. And I was, when you really talk about your love of Africa and animals, I was just in awe because I, I got to do a safari a, a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. it's been the most life-changing travel experience I've ever had. And right. so we'll let people read that. I just want to, mm-hmm. before we conclude here, sure. there's a moment where at the, towards the end, and I'm really sorry for the loss of your sister, and you don't talk a whole lot about your siblings, but the one you do tap into a little bit is your sister because yes. she seemed to always feel bad witnessing the abuse that you endured. And you learn at some point that through your one of your younger brothers that she's passing and you do make your way back to Missouri where your stepfather and your mother are. Uh, show up at and it's a really I mean I could see the movie already happening it was like, I know, my god was it's like so, so you know I was up to 1 30 last night and I was like oh my god I don't know if I can read this but oh my god it was so vivid and I had to and right you get to that point um we'll let people read on how that all went down yeah. but I just have to ask you to this day do you ever see yourself having a full-on conversation about to your mom and your stepdad about the potential damage that they may have just done. And because you do go on to say no child, you were saying, alluding to this a little bit earlier in the interview, no child deserves any abuse. And I would magnify and on a megaphone on so many levels, no child deserves this. Um, Yes. and thank God that you just turned out the way you did. But anything you want, would want to say to them? or No, I, I, I think here's the thing. It, it really isn't about them anymore for me. It's about the ability to <clears> – I just wrote this whole thing today in my journal about it. And it was, it's – you know, I can't go back and write, rewrite the story about what happened. And I don't believe that forgiveness is this like – um, is this equity that needs to take place in order to have freedom from that experience. I don't want the freedom from that experience. What I want to have, what I want to be able to do is look back at that situation and allow it to co- color the lens of the world I live in through compassion. Because when I see my parents now, and, and let me tell you, they have not changed much. I mean, they've changed, but it's not in a way that 
I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. But it's, I look at them and I think to myself, wow, they must be having a really hard journey. And, and my only job is to not dive back into that dry well where there is nothing there. But my job now is to become that well and to be, you know, the love I've been looking for, for me, you know, and to be able to emulate that out to others. Because there are millions of children who are abused every single day in tragic, horrible, horrible conditions who will never survive it, who will never understand and they'll never be able to forgive. And so the the least amount of uh, uh, value in this story is that I don't have to forgive to have freedom. I can have good boundaries. I can have compassion and I can accept what happened for what it was. And people talk about this nowadays. It's not PTSD for me. It's PTS growth. It's PTSG. I, this, I was affected by this situation deeply and profoundly, but I have grown not because of it in spite of it. You know, I've grown leaps and bounds beyond it. And my, I feel called to tell the story so that others know that they too can grow instead of be um, buried by the story. David P. Wickman, I mm-hmm. want to thank you. The, <laughs> thank you. So, oh my gosh. I love, love, love this book. The book is called mm-hmm. Every Grain of Sand, a Memoir. My goal was I knew the story was going to get to who it needs to get to. It doesn't matter if it becomes a New York Times bestseller or I win 500 awards. It's the book. The story is out there and who needs to read it is going to read it. I I have full confidence in that. And that is enough for me. For people that want to follow you to keep up with Mm. you, if you do other writings and such, how do people do that? Um, Well, dpwitchman.com. It's D-P-W-I-C-H-M-A-N.com. I'm so sorry I've been saying No, that. it's fine. I, everybody says it that way. It's D-P- okay. w- here, let me correct it. It's dpwickman.com. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all, my, all my social media uh, buttons are there. You can follow me on Instagram or on Facebook. And um, I think I'm maxed out on Facebook, but it's been a ride, let me tell you. And I cannot thank you enough for giving me 55 minutes on your show. Wow. <laughs> oh, no, you deserved more. But I want oh. people to read the book. And yeah, I, will, yeah. I will list all of this on, on tagspodcast.com. Thank you so much. You're amazing. Have a great day. Oh, my goodness. I want to thank my special guest this week, David P. Wickman, for his riveting memoir, Every Grain of Sand. If you go to the website, there are links to how to get the book. You can find it uh, on Amazon. I found it on Thrifty Books, Barnes & Noble. It really is a great read, particularly during this time. I highly recommend it. Don't forget, we're doing our Q&A with your questions. Email me, steve, at talkaboutgaysex.com to weigh in on some hot gay past sex topics that you've heard that you want to get your two cents in. Ask for some solicited sex advice or ask us, my co-host and I, some personal questions. Go to tagspodcast.com to, to reach out to me and we will get to you. In the meantime, be safe, be healthy. We will get through this and I will see you soon.
baseball fans. BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free to play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.